Good morning. It's a privilege for me to be here with you this morning, to share the Word of God with you. I'd like for you to please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. And this morning, we're going to read one of the most well-known parables of Jesus, which holds profound truth for our lives. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 20 through 37. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. This parable is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, this morning, we're not going to follow an outline but we're going to be walking through the text, driving the, the main point home, which comes in the form of a question. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. How is the gospel affecting the way we live? How is the gospel affecting the way we live? So with that, I will read. Our passage for this morning, Luke, Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered to him, or said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, a little context will help us understand how this parable came about. A few verses before this uh, lawyer stood up to test Jesus, we read that, in verse 
uh, yeah, a few verses before we read that Jesus had finished rejoicing in the Spirit, thanking the Father because He had hidden the secrets of salvation from people who thought they were wise, from people who were self-righteous. And instead, Jesus says that the Father had chosen to reveal the secret, the secrets of salvation to people who possessed childlike faith. And we see that in verses 21 and 22. Then, Jesus tells His disciples that they were blessed because they were able to see and experience things which prophets and kings desired to see, but didn't. And it is right after this that all of a sudden, one of these so-called wise men that Jesus had just referred to stood up, putting him to the test, asking, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So it's within this context that the parable is told. So we find that a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And his question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer was someone who was an expert in God's law. In other words, he was a theologian. He was someone who knew what the word of God God said and what was required of him. This was a person who knew the the law found in the Old Testament. Here we see that he addresses the question of eternal life. This desire to know about eternity, which stems from an understanding that has been placed in our hearts by God's design. As I've had conversations with many people about the gospel... I find that people in general want to find the answer to eternal life. What to do to live forever. And this is because God has placed this desire or this understanding in our heart. Now while this is an important question, we find a problem with the motivation for asking the question. In verse 25, Luke Luke tells us that, the lawyer asks this question to put Jesus to the test. How foolish it is for people, even today, to test God in the things that have to do with His Word, in the things that have to do with His design for us and life. Instead of accepting Jesus for who He is, as Peter declared a few chapters before this one, Christ is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, People test him according to their own sinful motivations. So the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Assumes that eternal life was something that could be earned. Or that salvation could be, could be inherited by doing good works. Now this was common for Judaism in that time for people to make their salvation dependent on their performance. Many people today think this way. People assume that if there is a heaven, being a good person or doing good things, doing good thing, deeds is the way or is our ticket into heaven. If you ask any person without a biblical understanding of the gospel, if they want to go to heaven... Most will say, yes, of course. But they believe that they can access it 
by their performance, by doing good things, by doing good works. And the lawyer here assumes that he can inherit eternal life by his performance. And Jesus responds there in verse 26. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Here we see that Jesus leads the lawyer back to scripture. Why? Because God's revelation for salvation is found in his word. Since, revel- since salvation comes from God. Jesus responds with the question, essentially saying, You recite it twice a day, the law. You tell me, what does the law say? So as an expert of the law, one who knew it, the lawyer responded with the greatest commandment. A term that had been previously used when a Pharisee had also tested Jesus asking, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So the lawyer responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as you love yourself. Now this first reference is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 5, which pious Jews recite daily. And the second reference is from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. So both of these verses sum up the law of God, which can be broken up into two categories, loving God and loving your neighbor. We see that even in the Ten Commandments, with the first four commandments having to do with our love for God and the last six commandments having to do with loving our neighbor. Now, the verb here for love is one that means To do so constantly and continually. Which means that the love that God requires is one that is constant and continual. Loving God this way and loving our neighbor this way without breaking the command or failing the command. Jesus responds by affirming the lawyer's answer saying, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Love perfectly, and you will live. So all the lawyer had to do, or anyone, was to keep the great commandment of loving God and loving one's neighbor. By doing this daily, the lawyer would earn eternal life. But if you're like me, you would be realizing that there's a problem here. The problem is that keeping these commandments is easier said than done. So the law of God requires perfect love all the time, not just once as a single act. To love God with one's heart, with one's soul, with one's mind, with one's strength, means that a person must love God with everything he is and everything He has. And to love our neighbor as God requires is to love them with the same kind of love that a person has for himself. So a question that might be formulating in your heads as I'm sure the audience that 
surrounded Jesus when this was going on must have been, who could ever love in such a way? Since the lawyer approached Jesus with a legal question, Jesus responded with a legal answer. The way to earn eternal life, Jesus said, was by perfectly obeying the law of God, perfectly loving God and perfectly loving his neighbor. And this is why Jesus responds with, do this and you will live. The problem then is that no person can do this other than the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So in other words, keeping the law can never save us. Not because there's something wrong with the law. The law of God is good and it's perfect. The problem is that there's something wrong with us. Namely, sin. So we are unable to love perfectly as required by God. And this is what Jesus was implying to the lawyer. So that he would see his need for a savior. So that he would turn away from his self-righteousness. We move then to verses 29 through 37. What does it mean to be a neighbor? By now, the lawyer should have recognized his inability to keep the law, to love God perfectly and his neighbor as himself. This would have been a great time for him to respond with sorrow for not keeping God's law. This ties in with what Jesus had taught earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. And we find that sermon in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 5. And we'll take one of those blessings as an example. Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. This, is, this would have been a perfect time for him to mourn and for him to realize his sin. Here Jesus is referring to a godly sorrow that mourns over sin. That is, for not keeping God's commandments, for falling short, for rebelling against Him. This godly sorrow produces repentance. And repentance that brings blessing and comfort from God. This is why Jesus taught, Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the response that the Pharisees should have had. Had he responded this way, I'm convinced that Jesus would have explained the way of salvation, which does not come through our works or through our performance, but by his perfection. Sadly, instead of seeking God's mercy, the lawyer tried to justify himself first by implicitly saying, I have kept the first commandment. I have that one down. That one's easy. I do what's required of me. I go to the temple. I pray the prayers. I do what I'm called to do. So, 
he skips the first commandment of loving God and jumps right into the next one asking, And who is my neighbor? Verse 29. The question that he asks could be rephrased as, Who exactly is my neighbor? Jesus. His question assumes that there were some people who were not his neighbors. Now, it's possible that he might have understood that he couldn't love everybody. So he tried to justify himself by limiting the people that he needed to love. Maybe loving less people would help him become a better lover. Now, when the Israelites spoke or referred to their neighbors, they referred to other Israelites exclusively, those who were members of their own community and not people from other nations. So they would limit themselves to loving their own people, but believed that they were not obligated to take care of anyone else. Now we address the question, who is my neighbor? By this point, Jesus could have easily ignored him, the lawyer, and gone back to his conversation that he was having with his disciples before he was interrupted. Jesus could have responded by telling him that his heart was hardened and that he was not going to toss pearls in, uh, before swine. But we see that Jesus didn't do that. Once again, in an act of compassion, Jesus graciously responded with a parable, giving the lawyer another chance to see the wickedness of his heart so that he would repent. Now there's a few things to keep in mind as we look at this parable and all of the parables found in Scripture. Parables are doctrinal stories, stories that reveal truths about Scripture, stories that express truths. One of my professors, Dr. Pennington, writes, Parables serve as a way to not only communicate information about the coming kingdom, but also as a retelling of the Old Testament now centered and consummated in Jesus Christ. And by using parables, Jesus offers a Christ-centered worldview and is inviting people to embrace it as their own. So the parables are not simply teaching or informing. They make a moral or religious point. They serve as the vehicle for Jesus' redefining of the people of God. So let's keep in mind that this is an illustration that Jesus told it was not something that really happened. He told this story to help the lawyer understand his self-righteousness and his need for Jesus. So we come to verse 30 through 35. Verses 30 through 35. Jesus' parable indirectly answered the lawyer's question, Who is my neighbor? And at the same time, defined the true meaning of what a neighbor is. So the parable begins with a man who had been assaulted. There in verse 30, we read, 
Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now let's make a few observations. The description provided helps the hearer visualize the points that Jesus wants to make. First, we read of the road, or what happened on this road. What happened to the man was common as people made this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. The way down was long, was windy and very steep. It was also very dangerous because of the caves and rocks that made it an ideal place for thieves to hide and ambush people who traveled through there. Then we read of the man. We read that the robbers not only attacked the man, they also stripped him, taking everything and left him for dead. So we can think of a man or this man as being in critical condition possibly unconscious and dying. The beaten man presumably lies on the road naked or half naked, stripped of everything that would identify his social position based on his clothing. The man never speaks, nor does he ask for help, making it possible that there was no expression of gratitude. This man then becomes any man, a Jew, a Samaritan, a Gentile. Next, Jesus presents some hope. In verses 31 through 32, we read that now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here Jesus introduces two men who had the chance to help the man in need. Both of these men would have known the Old Testament law. They would have known that Leviticus 19.34 says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, if you see a stranger in need, you do whatever it takes to meet his need. The priest would have known this and would have taught this. He would have also known the words of the prophet Micah who said on the Lord's behalf, and it's recorded in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So he would have known this too. The Levite is described as doing the same thing, passing by on the other side when he saw the man. The Levite would have known what the priest knew as well. I think that it would be safe to say that both the priest and the Levite 
lacked compassion. Now this parable isn't an indictment on their priesthood. It's a story about men who, would, who one would expect to help this man in need because they knew the law. But they didn't love. These were exactly the kind of men one would expect to stop and help. Sadly, both of them did nothing. Both were presented with an opportunity to love their neighbor, but both of them decided to pass by on the other side. Although Jesus doesn't tell us why the, why the men did what they did, there's a few things that we can conclude. The priest and the Levite had no love for the wounded man. They knew the word of God, but failed to display the love required of them. There's no excuse that could be given for why they would not help the man whose life was at risk. Now there are different explanations or different beliefs that interpreters have regarding why the priest didn't stop. Some believe that they didn't want to get contaminated by coming across this corpse. But the passage tells us that they were coming from Jerusalem, going to Jericho, which means that they weren't going to the temple, which would have allowed them plenty of time to go through the rite, through the rituals of cleansing. It might have been that they didn't want to be late to their next appointment. We don't know. What we do know is that they didn't express the love that was required of them. Now, the example that we see in these two men show us some characteristics of a bad neighbor. So what made these men bad neighbors? One, we see that they avoided the man who was in obvious and serious need. Two, they presumably came up with excuses for not wanting to get involved with someone who was in need of their love. And three, they refused to be a good neighbor to someone who was in need. As we think of this parable, I'd like for us to think about or ask ourselves, what kind of neighbors are we? Do we make excuses or try to justify ourselves when we see someone in need? It's just something for us to think about. Now we get to the good neighbor. By this point, we would have expected one of the religious men to help the man. I can imagine what the people that were surrounding Jesus as he was telling this parable, what they must have been thinking. If a temple priest and a priest's assistant, a Levite, ignored the man passing by on the other side, then perhaps an ordinary person might help. Maybe an ordinary Jew who would come to the rescue. 
And this is where Jesus presents an unexpected twist in the story. Something that no one was expecting. In verses 33 through 35 we read, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. When he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. We find out that the person who helped the man in need was not a Jew. It was not a Levite, and it was not a priest, but a Samaritan. Now we can imagine the shocked and disdain that Jesus' listeners would have experienced the moment that the Samaritan was introduced. To picture this, or to get a better understanding of this, it would be helpful to understand the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans. So who were the Samaritans? Samaritans came from the ten tribes of Israel who were carried away into captivity to Assyria and eventually intermarried with other people, not their own. Because these Israelites intermarried with foreigners and eventually adopted their practices, they were considered half-breeds and were despised by the Jews. The Samaritans built a temple for themselves on Mount Gerizim, which they insisted was a place where the nation should worship God. Samaria had also become a place of refuge for the outlaws of Judea. They willingly received Jewish criminals, violators of Jewish laws, and those who had been excommunicated, all of which increased the tension between both nations. The Samaritans received only the first five books of Moses and rejected the prophets and all of the Jewish traditions. So by this point in time, there was a strong hostility between both groups. John tells us in his gospel, there in John 4, 9, that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And in part, Samaritans had been known for giving Jews trouble. Just a few chapters before, here in Luke, in Luke 9, Jesus had experienced the Samaritans' rejection of him on his way to Jerusalem. So we understand that the Samaritans and Jews were enemies. And this is where Jesus introduces the Samaritan to teach what it means to be a good neighbor. Now we can also see some characteristics of a good neighbor in the, in the Samaritan. So from the parable, we notice that the good neighbor, the Samaritan, noticed the man who was in need. While the priest and the Levite also noticed, they both passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan went to the man. 
We also notice that the Samaritan had compassion for someone who was suffering. One expositor explains that the Greek word used for compassion expresses strong feelings of pity and tenderness. This word is used to indicate God's compassion for us in Christ. And we find an example of this earlier in Luke's gospel where Jesus entered a town called Nine. And he came across a man who had died and was being carried out. Luke tells us that he was the only son of his mother and she was a widow. Luke also tells us that as Jesus saw her weeping, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then Jesus commanded the son to rise and then gave him to his mother. So here in verse 33 in our parable, the word compassion is used to express the Samaritan's heart. A response to the man who was in need. He felt the need, but he also moved into action. This Samaritan, even without knowing the man, had pity on him and loved him. The Samaritan's action teach us that being a good neighbor involves more than an emotional response, more than just knowing God's word, it requires practical deeds of grace and mercy, which is what Jesus was trying to get this lawyer to understand. In his example, we see that a good neighbor is willing to stop and help even when it's inconvenient. We read that as the Samaritan journeyed, he stopped got down from his animal and began to take care of the man's needs, disinfecting the man's wounds. And as he took each of these actions, the Samaritan was displaying love. So we see that a good neighbor, as we read in Jesus' parable, is willing to make sacrifices of time and money to serve people in trouble. In his comments on this passage, J.C. Ryle says that the kindness of a Christian towards others should be a practical love, a love which entails on him self-sacrifice and self-denial, both in money and time and trouble. His charity should be seen not merely in his talking, but in his acting. Not merely by his profession, but in his practice. And I think of James as he calls us to not only be hearers of the word, but also doers of it. So we see the Samaritan's actions as an act of love, We also read that he took him to an inn where he continued giving him medical attention. He also arranged for him to continue being cared for by the innkeeper by providing some money and after that offering to cover any extra expenses, as we see in verse 35. 
So Jesus turns to the lawyers, turns the lawyer's question around from who is my neighbor or who qualifies to be my neighbor? Jesus reverses the question and asks him, what does your love towards someone else in need look like? By answering the question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer would not have been able to keep this commandment as we have already seen. Because God requires for this love, love of God and love of neighbor to be perfect at all times, continually. So Jesus helped him by not giving him, leading him to that answer, but helping him to see his heart so that he would turn away from his sin and turn to Jesus. Jesus gave him an illustration of what loving others as he loves himself looks like. So now we come to who is the good neighbor? In verse 36, Jesus ends with his, his parable with a final attempt to help the lawyer understand his sinful condition and inability to justify himself before God. There in verse 36, Jesus asks the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now the lawyer was careful in the way that he responded. The obvious answer is the Samaritan. But the lawyer answered the question by saying, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus responded, you go and do likewise. In answering the lawyer's question with a parable, Jesus wanted him to consider something much deeper not who is my neighbor, but instead, whose neighbor am I? We find that in this way, in the way that Jesus rephrases the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Rather than leaving the lawyer with just an explanation of what a neighbor is, Jesus made it personal by addressing his heart. So the issue at hand was not what someone had to do in order to qualify for his help, but what kind of neighbor he was. A theologian named Heinrich Grieven once um, writes, You can't define a na- your neighbor in advance. You can only be a neighbor when the moment of mercy arrives. So instead of trying to come up with a definition of neighbor, Jesus was highlighting to him that he needed to take advantage of the situations that were placed in front of him to help those who were in need. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this isn't a command 
to Christians. For we have already established that we cannot keep this commandment perfectly. We will fall, we will fall short every time. Jesus explains this to help understand humanity's fallen condition. We can't and don't love like this, nor will we ever love like this here on earth. There might be a few occasions when this kind of love is expressed. Jesus is calling for what Jesus is calling for is a kind of limitless love toward anybody and everybody that is beyond our capacity. And we know that we don't love like this. So Jesus is giving the lawyer one more opportunity to say, Jesus, I don't love like that. I can't. If that's what's required, I can't get into the kingdom. I don't love God like that. I definitely don't love my neighbor like that. Aren't we all like that? If this is what God requires for us to get into heaven, perfect, continual love to Him and our neighbor, then we're not getting there. We would never be able to earn our salvation by keeping this. We were saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we were saved, God not only forgave us of our lack of love for Him, but also of our lack of love for others. We won't be able to love like this until we are in His presence. When we find His grace in Jesus Christ, then we begin to love like this. Not perfectly, but it becomes the way we live and love others as we love ourselves. So does, does this mean that the lawyer was not obligated to love? This parable, Jesus presented so that the lawyer would see his need for a savior, his need for Christ. And so, we are called to express the love of Christ to those we come across, not because it earns our salvation, not because that's what gets us into heaven, but because it's the love that we have been demonstrated. It's the love that we have tasted and seen. As God's workmanship, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand, that we should walk in them. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.10. 
So while it is important for us to ask questions about whether or not we should give money to a homeless person or how we can best use our time and resources, we should always do so with the gospel in mind. So another question that I'd like for us to think about is, is there someone we are able to help but have been trying to ignore? How will we respond the next time we come across someone in need? Jesus told the lawyer to do what the Good Samaritan did and to show mercy. As Christians, we are called to love our neighbors. We are called to reflect the love of Christ. Because when we do this, our lives, our actions, our deeds demonstrate the love of Christ in us. We must be careful not to only talk about love, And just leave it at that. We must be people who display love by being good neighbors. Once again, not because these good things save us, as we've already established earlier that good works cannot save a person. The reason is because our loving actions confirm the story we tell about the gospel. So the aim of this parable is not to make us feel guilty for not giving our time and resources away for, or for not being more kind to homeless people or those that are in need. It's to help us see our guilt of not loving God and our neighbor as we should. Then it should help us to lead us to Christ for mercy and for forgiveness of sin, because it is only found in Christ. That's the aim of the parable. It's not to make us feel guilty for not being, or giving our resources. We must remember the context. The lawyer wanted to know what he had to do in order to be saved. Jesus provided the legal question that his legal Jesus provided the legal answer that his legal question required which was love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly do this and you will live So if everyone is our neighbor who can possibly love the way that God requires Once again if we try to do this on our own, by our own selfish hearts, we will quickly fail. We must turn to Christ, the perfect lawkeeper, the good neighbor, because we will find mercy and salvation in Him alone. So if you're visiting us this morning, I want to tell you that there is good news. This parable of the Good Samaritan shows us how much we need the mercy and the grace and the love of God that is offered in the gospel. 
the gospel means good news. The bad news being that we have all fallen short. We have all rebelled against God. And we all deserve to be separated from Him for an eternity in hell. But the good news is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God offers forgiveness to law-breaking sinners who are not good neighbors. As we read through this parable and about the life of Jesus as presented in Scripture, we are continually reminded of the saving work of Christ who always practiced what He preached. So Jesus calls the lawyer to turn away, turn away from his self-righteousness. He calls us to turn away from our self-righteousness. And to depend on Christ. To turn to the gospel. And as we do that, he calls us to be good neighbors to the people that we come across in life. So once again... How is the gospel impacting the way that we live? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, thanking you that you invite us to come to you and we, we praise you because you are a merciful God. You are a compassionate God who saves people not because of our works, not because of our deeds or our actions or the few times that we love, but because of your compassion and your mercy and your love. Lord, we confess our inability to love you as you require. We confess, Lord, that we don't obey obey you as you require us to, that we turn to other things, to other joys, temporary joys in this world, and we don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We prefer our comfort. We prefer to do what benefits us. And so we fall short of what you require of us. But we thank you that you are a God who remains faithful even though we are unfaithful. We thank you, Lord, that we have forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and that you call us to confess our sins because when we do, you, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we ask that you would continue transforming our hearts so that we would learn to love you with joy and that we would love our neighbors with joy and that our love would reflect your love and that those that are around us would see us and glorify you because you are the author of that love that we experience and we display. So Lord, we thank you for your Son in Jesus Christ in whom we have forgiveness of sin and acceptance into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.